0: This episode is brought to you by the Weather Channel app. Did you
1: know the app can help you forecast more than just the weather? With allergy tracking and risk mapping. So you know when to stay inside and load up on podcast. As well as air quality and UV indexing. So you know when to get outside, load up on sunscreen and podcast. Forecast more of what you love with the Weather Channel app. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Care Talk, My name is Laura Packard, and I am the founder of Healthcare Voices, but also I have personal experience with America's healthcare system because I'm a cancer survivor, and five years ago I went through diagnosis and treatment, uh, surprise medical bills, fights with insurance companies, and all of the above. And so we are here to answer your healthcare health insurance questions and help get you the information you need to get the care you need. So I am pleased to welcome some experts to answer those questions. And first, let's talk about what's happening right now, which is open enrollment for health insurance. Uh, So to tell you more about who's eligible, how you sign up, and when the deadline is, welcome Zoid from Health Sherpa.
2: Thanks, Laura. So it is currently open enrollment for the Affordable Care Act. Um, We I've already passed the deadline to get coverage starting on January 1st for most folks. So that deadline was December 15th. Um, However, if you hit an error or if you were, you know, on hold with the marketplace while you were trying to get coverage, um, you may qualify for a special enrollment period. Um, So watch out for that and um, call healthcare.gov if you want to know more. Also, there is still time to get coverage that starts on February 1st, um, so the deadline for that is January 15th, um, so you can go to healthcare.gov, you can go to our website, Sherpa. Um, we both also have call centers, assistance, um, and you can find local help on healthcare.gov's website as well. Um, another thing to note is that if you qualify for a special enrollment period, um, then you can still get coverage starting on January 1st. Um, so that would be if you had lost coverage, um, maybe if you had coverage, but then moved to a different state. There's a few different scenarios in which you could qualify, and those are um, all listed on healthcare.gov as well. Some folks also qualify um, as having lost coverage because perhaps their plan isn't going to be available next year. We had a couple carriers leaving the market, like Bright Health. Um, so if you you know were enrolled in Bright Health for 2022 and can't for next year, they're no longer in your area, um, then you actually would qualify most likely for a special enrollment period. um, So you could still go ahead and get coverage starting on January. So there's a few ways you can get that coverage, um, but you still, for everyone else, um, you know, get in there by January 15th for that February.
1: Absolutely. Thank you. So again, if you don't have health insurance, you can get health insurance through the Affordable Care Act by going to healthcare.gov before January 15th. Our next question is from Cindy, uh, who is retired and has Aetna Medicare Advantage from the state of New Jersey. Uh, Cindy lives in Florida and many doctors are not accepting uh, that Medicaid Advantage plan. Uh, I've already paid out of pocket and, and submit the bill myself. I was just diagnosed with cancer and feel worried. One doctor actually said to drop what I have and go with traditional Medicare. After working 30 years in New Jersey for my health care, I don't think that's a good idea. Suggestions. Uh, So to give some uh, answers to Cindy, welcome Diane from Social Security Works and Just Care. You're
3: muted. Thank you, Laura. And hello, Cindy. Cindy, you are facing a problem that far too many people with Medicare Advantage, and that is you've now gotten sick and are trying to get the best possible care as you should get for somebody, especially with a complex and costly condition. And what we've seen in a widespread and persistent way with Medicare Advantage plans, not all of them, but they're not named the bad guys, is that they delay and deny care far too often for people with complex and costly conditions, including cancer. And the government has done a pretty poor job of reining them in and getting them to do right by people with costly conditions. Why are they doing such a poor job? Well, one potential motivator is that they're paid up front by the regardless of the amount of money they spend on people's care. So the less they spend on your care, the more money they get to pocket and make in profits and deliver. A recent uh, report came out showing that people... In cancer, with cancer specifically, who are in Medicare Advantage have higher death rates than people in the traditional Medicare. So, I think your doctor was advising you to drop Medicare Advantage because the doctor wants to make sure that you're able to get the care you need when you need it, and that's not always the case. From Medicare, I realize that you have your Medicare Advantage coverage directly through the state, and so you're saving money by being in the Medicare Advantage plan, and it's probably served you perfectly well while you've been healthy. But the issue is, well, how is it going to serve you when you're sick? That I can't tell you. What I can tell you is that if you're in traditional Medicare, you can see almost any doctor anywhere in the country without prior authorizations and get the care you need when you need it. The trick for you, though, is that if you were to switch to traditional Medicare, you would have to spend about $2,500 a year on supplemental coverage. And you'd have to buy that supplemental coverage to protect yourself financially because traditional Medicare does not have an out-of-pocket limit as Medicare Advantage does. The good news is, if you can get Medicare supplemental coverage, you won't have almost any out-of-pocket expenses whatsoever maybe $10, $50, um, but the $2,500 cost for the insurance will cover the bulk of your care. The bad news is that because you're sick uh, and you get your insurance in New Jersey, you may not be able to buy a Medicare supplemental insurance policy. So switching to traditional Medicare may be prohibitively expensive because you would be liable for the 20% coinsurance that you're required to pay in traditional Medicare. So this is a long way of saying that your doctor makes a very compelling argument that with cancer, you wanna be able to get the care you want from the doctors you wanna see when you wanna see them without holdups. And that you can do with traditional Medicare. But the issue is, can you afford and can you get the supplemental coverage you would need to see the doctors you wanted to see and have full coverage?
1: Thanks, Diane. Uh, so it sounds like there's some more research that Cindy may have to do to figure out the best plan for her situation. Very well said. Our next question is from Layson. Uh, who wants to know how come you need to enroll in insurance in the first place. Uh, In other countries, uh, you know, America makes it as difficult as possible to get health care. In other countries, this doesn't happen. So, Zoe, do you want to talk about why there is health insurance open enrollment in the first place, why it isn't automatic?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it is a, you know, rather complicated talk topic, folks have written whole books about this, Um, but a lot of it comes down to how health insurance got started in this country, which was primarily, um, you know, during World War II when there were, they put in, not only did they put in caps on the prices for goods, but they also put in wage caps. Um, And so one of the ways that employers could distinguish themselves from each other um, was by offering additional benefits that didn't count as wages, health insurance being one of those. Um, and that was really great at the time because a lot of folks didn't have health insurance, couldn't afford health care. Um, and then unions really took off with that. And it, it became a, a really great way you know, for unions to advocate for the workers to get better benefits for them by you know, getting better health insurance to their employers. Um, but however, as the country moved forward and as you know, we realized that having your health insurance tied to your employment isn't you know, the best in a lot of scenarios, Um, it became hard to work against that because a lot of folks really like their health insurance from their employer. They like being able to choose it. Um, And, you know, employers have their open enrollment periods um, and the health insurance companies like it too um, for various reasons. And so it really came down to trying to work with a system that is already in place that maybe doesn't work all the time, but a lot of folks are used to it and really like it. Um, There's also just a Big push in this country to be able to make your own choices and do what you want, and so a lot of folks, you know, don't like the sound of just being automatically enrolled in something. They want to be able to opt in rather than opt out. So it, it's part cultural, part just how the system kind of developed, um, and so it is it is very difficult to change that in this country, as opposed to other countries that maybe right off the bat kind of developed more of an opt out system. Mm-hmm.
1: And also, uh, because we have so many different pieces to healthcare in our country, there's so many different plans you could be eligible for or not mm-hmm. eligible for. That it, if if we had universal healthcare, were one system for everybody, then it would be easier to not have an opt in because everybody would already be eligible. But we have so many different parts mm-hmm. from Medicare to Medicaid to CHIP to the Affordable Care Act to the VA uh, th- that there isn't one answer because a person could be eligible for more than one and would have to pick. Our next question is from Elizabeth, who wants us to discuss long-term
3: care. Uh, Diane? Sure. So unfortunately, as good as Medicare is, and in fact, as good as it is in automatically enrolling people at 65 or when they first get Social Security, um, it is weak when it comes to long-term care benefits. Uh, It doesn't cover, um, in addition, vision, hearing, and dental. It does cover all other medically reasonable and necessary services. So that's the good news. But with long-term care, all you get from Medicare in the nursing home area, for example, is 100 days of care in a skilled nursing facility. If you have been hospitalized as an inpatient for at least three days in the 30 days prior to admission in the skilled nursing facility. And you only qualify for the Medicare skilled nursing facility benefit if you need skilled nursing or therapy services on a daily basis. So it's a very limited benefit for a very limited number of people for a limited number of times. That's all you get. You can also get home health services through Medicare. Those last for an indefinite period of time if you can find a home health agency willing to take you on. And the catch here is that you're only eligible for long, well, for home health benefits over the long term if you are um, unable to get out of your house on your own, if you need assistance getting out of your house and you need skilled therapy or skilled nursing services on an intermittent basis. So again, it's a very limited benefit, and usually it too is for a limited period of time. Medicare should be covering long-term care. I won't go into the history, but there was a point in time in the late 90s when it did for a short period, um, the Congress passed a law for it to cover long, but it was going to pay for long-term care in a way that wasn't making some people happy. And Congress quickly repealed that law. And so unfortunately, people are now stuck with huge bills uh, towards the end of their lives when they need long-term care. And here I should add that about seven in 10 of us will need long-term care at some point in our lives. Long-term care insurance is an option, but it's generally a terrible one, for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's super expensive. Uh, Number two, it doesn't tend to cover all your long-term care needs. Number three, actually, I will add in, you need to qualify. And usually you need to qualify by not being able to perform three activities of daily living, like bathing, eating, toileting. So by the time you do qualify for long-term care, you've already put a lot of money out of pocket. And again, the benefit tends to be incredibly limited and incredibly costly.
1: Thank you, Diane. And that also answers Jennifer's question about uh, how seniors are covered if they need to go to a nursing home. And our final question for 2022 is from Maria, who is in Oregon, and um, Maria's treatment uh, is for uh, undetectable levels of HIV. So she wants to know why in the assistance uh, program um, Maria can't work uh, and wants to get my financial independence. Uh, Maria is not ill and uh, needs work because the work dignifies a person. So Zoe, do you want to talk a little bit about how uh, in some assistance programs you can't work and, and what's going on there?
2: Yeah. So it it's rather complicated. Um, I can't necessarily speak to the situation generally with, or in specific without knowing kind of exactly what assistance program. Um, but um Basically, in order to qualify for a lot of different forms of assistance, usually tied to disability, um, you can't make over a certain amount um, per month. Um, And so, you know, the idea being, if you can work, if you can make a certain amount, then you shouldn't be getting this assistance. However, it puts a lot of folks in this situation where, you know, if they stay on the assistance, then they're essentially... in always living in poverty because the assistance isn't nearly enough. Um, But then if they work, they lose that assistance and maybe they can't work enough to um, make up for that. Um, so you're really in kind of a catch 22 of no matter what you do, you're not making. it. Um, and it's, it's interesting to think about this because it's kind of the opposite of what has what happened in a few states um, with Medicaid during the Trump administration, where several states were trying to get work requirements passed in order to be on Medicaid. Um, the idea behind that being, you know, why should we be, you know, paying for folks as health care when they're not even trying to work? Um, when the reality is this just puts an extra burden on folks to report, you know, how many hours they've worked and such. Um, when when we look at the data, though, folks who go on Medicaid, they are often able to get well enough because they know healthcare to then be able to work and earn more money and eventually maybe go off of Medicaid. Um, or they stay on it, which is also fine. But a lot of folks, you know, Medicaid is very temporary because they do get a job. Um, And health insurance through that or through the Affordable Care Act. Um, So it's interesting that we see kind of both of these things, both like work requirements and especially work restrictions. And it all comes down to, you know, politics and deciding who is worthy of making this assistance, when in reality, assistance should just be helping folks be able to work and get more and be able to live their lives. Um, So you know, we do see kind of both of those. And I, again, I can't speak specifically to this situation, but generally it all comes down to, to politics and optics. Mm-hmm.
1: And Maria, you might be able to contact your state legislators. Uh, it, it depends on what it, what program you're on and whether it's state or federal. But uh, it, this this is something you could bring up to the people that are elected to represent you and tell them that, uh, you know, that folks like you are trapped in a situation where you actually can't work or you would lose your health insurance. And now I'm excited to introduce our special guest, Kaylin from Healthcare Rising, Arizona, the fast-growing membership organization behind Arizona's recently passed Proposition 209, a ballot measure that protects consumers from predatory debt collection, including medical debt. Welcome, Kaylin. Thank
0: you, Laura, for having me. I'm so excited to talk with everyone about what we're doing over in Arizona.
1: So tell us a little about Healthcare Rising.
0: Yeah, so Healthcare Rising Arizona uh, is a healthcare advocacy organization uh, made up of uh, members and contributors across the state. Um, We're actually the fastest growing healthcare advocacy membership organization in state. Uh, We've got just over 1,700 members who come from all different walks of life. We have people who themselves are part of the healthcare field, um, but also people who are teachers, uh, small business owners, um, retired folks, you name it. If you're someone who feels like they are fed up with our failing healthcare system in state, uh, Healthcare Rising Arizona is a place for, for folks to, to really put their advocacy into action and do what we can to try and make meaningful change in state on the areas around healthcare.
1: And tell us about what uh, is Proposition 29? What just happened in Arizona? So Proposition
0: 209, uh, the official title is the Arizona Predatory Debt Collection Protection Act. Um, so really great for practicing your diction there. Uh, it, a law that we, uh, Healthcare Rising Arizona supported that was recently passed by the Arizona voters with 72% approval. Um, that does three really important things around um, really addressing issues around medical debt. Where this whole idea came from was having conversations with our members and, and people in Arizona and asking them their healthcare story. Uh, and unfortunately, but also unsurprisingly, the answer we hear often is, you know, I-, I thought this was covered or I have good health insurance and I still got this incredibly high bill and now it's in collections. So what Prop 209 uh, now does, as it has passed, it's been certified, it's in law, Um, is it has three updates to our existing statute to better protect folks when it comes. Uh, First being it goes in and um, it increases our exemptions in state. Um, So because of Prop 209, we now have higher protections for your home and your car and your bank account. Um, To give an example, uh, only $300 prior to 209, only $300 is protected in a checking account from collections. That is barely an electricity bill in the summer in Arizona. Prop 209 has increased that to now $5,000 is protective. That's a number where you can actually put food on the table uh, and, and pay down your bills in a meaningful way. So all that has a cost of living increase as well. So these exemptions are gonna continue to be protective as time goes on, as houses become more expensive. Um, we wanted to make sure that protection grew. Uh, secondly, the initiative reduces the amount of wages that can be subject to garnishment. Uh, right now in Arizona, that number is 25%, which is exorbitantly high. Uh, And because of 209, that number drops down to no more than 10%, so 90% of your paycheck protected. Uh, And then finally, and most importantly, what the initiative does is it reduces the amount of interest that can be charged on medical debt. Uh, So prior to Prop 209 in Arizona, if you have medical debt, collections can go after you for 10% interest compounded annually. Um, Because of 209, that number drops to no more than 3%, which is a much more protective number and takes into account that you had a medical emergency, and people shouldn't be profiting off of your worst day, essentially, with this 10% interest that then just snowballs into issues of bankruptcy and losing your house and your car and your inability to, to get to work because of medical debt. And at Healthcare Rising Arizona, we firmly believe that you should not lose your house or your car because you had a medical emergency. And Prop 209, we think, successfully.
1: Great. And so, how does it help Arizonans struggling with the high cost of healthcare right now?
0: So I think what's really important when we're talking about this picture of, of high costs, 60% of bankruptcies nationwide are a result of medical debt. And so what this initiative does by increasing those exemption numbers is it's ensuring that more folks are going to have access to their homestead and their vehicle, which is often for many people a source of income, getting to and from work. Um, just to give some, some numbers, an example, um, only two, you know, prior to 209, only two hundred and fifty thousand dollars of value was protected in your homestead. That that means essentially, if you're taken to bankruptcy over that, you're losing your home. Um, Prop two hundred nine increases that to four hundred thousand, which is more in line with what the average cost of a home is in Arizona. So by making those steps to make sure that your home is better protected, your car is better protected, uh, your wages are better protected, we're ensuring that patients have a real fighting chance when it comes to these issues of medical debt, where uh, frankly, predatory, you know. Predatory debt collectors will come after you. There's a major incentive for them with that 10% interest compounded annually. Down at 3%, it's a much more humane number. And like I said earlier, it really takes into account that you had a medical emergency and we need to be treating your interest in that way as well.
1: Absolutely. And are ballot initiatives something that Healthcare Rising Arizona is considering as a way to make further improvements to the healthcare system in Arizona? We
0: are. Um, I, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that you know 209 was was really our our, our really shining uh, success of 2022, uh, and we, we found that there's a there's a formula there that's successful. 72 uh, percent of voters voted yes on this initiative. Um, this is a massive success for us and we think could be a very successful tool in the future when we're talking about ways that we can directly communicate with voters about the issues that they know best. And that's their own healthcare story. And I think that that really played itself out when we look at the the voting in Arizona on Prop 209. Uh, and I think that it really paves the way for us to look at more successful avenues of trying to face down the problems we have in healthcare. And, and we are so excited about 209 and we know it is going to do amazing work for people in state, but there is still so much to fix in healthcare. I mean medical debt alone is like a tens of billion dollar industry. Um, this is definitely a first step. Uh, And I think that we're excited to see what can possibly come next through the initiative process.
1: And could this um, be a model, you know, ballot initiatives for getting healthcare reform and protections passed in other states, especially states where maybe the legislature isn't willing to do this work?
0: I absolutely think it can. Um, I I think, you know, I'm going back to this was a massively successful initiative. And, And this also broke partisan lines. It broke socioeconomic lines. Uh, medical debt is an issue that if it hasn't affected you personally, I guarantee you know someone who it has. And I think that when people are looking at this at the ballot box, that hits home for them. Um, we certainly created an Arizona solution for an Arizona problem, but that's not to say that this is an Arizona-specific problem. Medical debt exists across the board, across states. Um, I, I think that the, the method that we used for the initiative process um, was incredibly successful for us. We, we really built a 13-month ramp to make sure that we collected enough signatures. We really vetted our policy beforehand before we put it to the voters. And I think that for folks who have ballot initiatives, um, that could be a really interesting avenue to take. Uh, and just more broadly about the policy, I, I think what we did, which was also very useful, we, uh, we worked pretty closely with the National Consumer Law Center's No Fresh Start initiative, which does an excellent breakdown of different states and where they're at in terms of their current bankruptcy protections. Uh, we, we had a nice D rating next to quite a few of ours. Um, and so we were able to use some of that as model legislation, but also very importantly, um, is we made sure to incorporate uh, local expertise as well. So we worked with groups on the ground who are experts in bankruptcy, in healthcare law, in uh, economic justice issues, to make sure that we were putting forward numbers that made sense, uh, that were realistic with what Arizonans are facing, Uh, and really made it authentic. And so I think that the combination of looking at nationally, where are the benchmarks, and then taking it locally, what can we do, was a really great recipe for success. Uh, And I'd I'd certainly be very excited to see other states use this as an approach as well.
1: And so what's next for Healthcare Rising Arizona? That is a great question.
0: Uh, I I think, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we, we found great success in the initiative process. Uh, we've got something that works here, and I really want to attribute this to the work of our membership uh, on the ground. Like I said, we're 1,700 and truly growing by the hour. It feels like, uh, and they're a team that has really done the work of organizing their communities, their neighborhoods, their friend groups, uh, collecting a record amount of signatures. I also want to add, we we collected over 500,000 signatures, setting an Arizona record to put this on the ballot, and I, I just want to put our membership out there first and say they were so important in spearheading this effort. Um, and, and I think that they're hungry as well to see what else we can do through the initiative process. Um, I, I think that we've taken a little bit of a, a time to be excited about what's happened with the passage of 209. Um, but as I said earlier, there are so many issues in healthcare that you know, we'll never get bored in terms of trying to figure out ways to better protect our friends and our neighbors here in Arizona. Um, what does that policy look like right now? Uh, I can certainly tell you that we're trying to figure that out. We're, we're meeting with some folks locally, some folks nationally, we're, we're talking with our own membership to see what are the issues that, that energize them? What are the issues that are really affecting Arizonans when it comes to healthcare? Uh, and we're looking forward to see what the next few cycles look like in terms of what we can do through the initiative process. We of course also engage in the legislative arena as well, um, but we've got a really excellent team here at Healthcare Rising Arizona um, that I think has proven that you can be successful in trying to fix healthcare with the initiative process. So I would say, certainly stay tuned for, for whatever we have next
1: in store. And what would you say if somebody's watching this and they're in one of the states that their legislature probably is not going to do anything about medical debt? Uh, what should they be doing? What, would, what, what advice would you give? That, that's a great question.
0: I would say, if you happen to be from a state that has the initiative process, that's an excellent avenue to take. I mean, we're we're very lucky here in Arizona to have the initiative process actually as part of our constitution. Uh, It's an Arizonan's constitutional right to have access to the direct democracy that's provided through the initiative process. Uh, I I would say if you're in one of those states that has that ability, I I would certainly start organizing around that right now. Signature requirements are different from state to state, but but plan early and plan well. Um, And for states that don't have the initiative process, I think the issue of healthcare, and I'm sure that you've seen this in your work as well, this is an issue that is able to transcend party lines, socioeconomic lines in a way that is so tangible. Um, I even think about just the the coalition of endorsers that we had for our initiative. We have people from different faith backgrounds. We had people from different um, religious, uh, faith backgrounds, religious backgrounds. We have people from different parts of the state, from different industries, all coming in to say, this is a problem. I think the, air, the issue of medical debt, people are so highly aware that they are one accident away from having their entire life changed. They're one diagnosis away from having to make decisions that no one should have to make. Uh, that, that's, that's just a human reality. And I think that there is amazing opportunity from an organizing perspective. Um, to grow a base that's willing to become very, very vocal and then very effective in state legislatures. I, I think about our membership. We, we grew from, from you know, zero to, to over 1,700 members and continuously growing because we take that pledge seriously, that this is an issue that transcends partisan boundaries. Uh, and when you have a voice loud enough at that level, people start to listen. Um, I, I also encourage people from the local level, if you have a healthcare service is passionate, run for the legislature as well. There are so many ways that we can get involved to try and fix this problem. Um, and it's going to take all of us, not one of us. Um, so whether you come from an initiative state or a legislative state, um, start talking to your friends, start talking to your neighbors. Build coalitions, small and large, and that's how we get things accomplished.
1: Absolutely. And thank you. And if you live in a state that has uh, recently had a coalition coming together for Medicaid expansion, like perhaps you're in Nebraska or Missouri or one of the states that have recently voted on this, all of those organizations that already came together on Medicaid expansion could possibly come together and work on medical debt as well. Absolutely. So thank you, everybody, for listening please keep calling and texting in your questions and we will answer them in future shows in 2023. (laughs) Thanks again. This is care talk.